Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson, and joining the show today is Brett Siglin, a real estate capital markets business attorney at Jennings Strauss. He joins us today from Phoenix, Arizona. Brett, great to see you. Welcome to the show. Great to see you too, Jimmy, and I'm so glad to be a part of this today. Oh, fantastic. Great to hear that. Uh, Brett, you and I interacted at the OZ Expo in Phoenix, um, just a couple blocks from your office back in early October. Uh, you and I both served on the legislative panel, the first morning panel at that OZ Expo, along with Reed Thomas from JTC Americas, Shay Hawkins from the Opportunity Funds Association, and formerly out of Senator Tim Scott's office, was also on the panel. And of course, Dan Kowalski, uh, formerly with the Treasury Department, and he was the one who essentially wrote the regulations for Opportunity Zones. What was uh, what were some of your key takeaways from the legislative panel at that event that, that you and I served on, Brett? Yeah, I, well, I think one of the first takeaways was, I don't think anybody knows whether or when, uh, well, certainly I, I think the... Uh, you know, the legislation will pass, but we don't know necessarily when. So you know, it could be in the next month or two, or it could creep into next year. And that was that was kind of an interesting takeaway. I think either way, you know, everyone agreed that you know this is a necessary, uh, uh, you know, uh, pending pending uh, change. Uh, you know, the four or five things that came up, obviously, uh, whether or not uh, to introduce more reporting requirements, that was something that um, I found really interesting. And uh, we talked you know, at length about whether and how that will impact sponsors uh, and, and others out there. You know, I think one of the takeaways is that, you know, it's probably going to, um, you know, uh, affect smaller funds, smaller sponsors, maybe more than others. I think some of the larger funds out there are probably kind of ready for, for those reporting requirements uh, to, to, to be uh, enacted. Now, a lot of um, them are already uh, collecting a lot of the reporting data that they're expecting they may need in 2023 and beyond, right? Yeah, agreed. And right. and I think, you know, it's interesting, you know, at, at the outset of this five years ago, everybody expected there to be, you know, reporting requirements. Um, and I think just because of, you know, the the nature of the legislation was passed in the Tax Cuts Jobs Act in, in 2017, you know, there, there was a you know, there was a cost to imposing reporting requirements. So that was dropped. But, um, yeah, I think, I think everybody's kind of geared and ready for that. Um, one of the, one of the other takeaways though, for me though, I think is, you know, there's already been, um, you know, a lot of mistakes made, if you will, in, in the industry, just in the, in the first few years. And I don't, I don't know that this has gotten that much publicity yet, but we've had, um, you know, three years of practice now and there's been, you know, a, you know, a lot of mistakes sort of, you know, with the, uh, the 8609 filings and, uh, uh, or sorry, the 8996 filings. And then, you know, also the investor filings on their tax returns. Um, and we've seen, um, you know, the IRS come back and issue, 
issue letters to uh, to fund sponsors that uh, you know they had made mistakes on their 8996 filing. And uh, there's been you know several hundred of those this year. And my concern is that going forward, you know, as we see more and more tax returns from say the 2021 tax year compared to 2019, 2020, there was exponentially more activity. There's probably more people out there making mistakes on those forms, or maybe their accountants were making mistakes. And um, yeah, I'm concerned about what that does to the industry. And then, you know, it's sort of the uptick in, in audits at the IRS. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that this uh, pending legislation does is it, it not only reinstates those reporting requirements, but it also imposes pretty strict penalties for failure to report. So I think that's something that you know, a lot of folks in the industry, uh, especially smaller funds that maybe haven't, <clears throat> you know, hired, you know, the most ex you know, experienced accountants are going to need to be really mindful of in the coming years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that conversation reminds me of a podcast interview that I did with Kirk Walton a few weeks ago. We talked about some of the filing issues where QOZ, QOZBs were filing Form 8996 erroneously. And then you got into a situation where the IRS considers that some QOF investments were made into other QOFs. It created kind of a whole mess there. And I don't know if there's been a clear way to unwind from that yet. But uh, anyways, I'll, I'll make sure I link to that episode in the show notes for today's episode if anybody wants to go down that rabbit hole a little bit further. But certainly a lot of uh, speculation regarding the legislation. I think by and large, the industry wants this legislation to pass. The industry is ready for additional reporting and transparency requirements. We consider it a good thing on the whole. And we're certainly looking forward to having the provision, the Opportunity Zone tax policy extended for an additional two years, reopening up some of the five and seven year, or I guess now it's going to be a six year window for the 10 and 15% basis step ups. If you don't know what I'm talking about, this is going over your head. I've got a recap of the legislation. I'll be sure to link to that on the show notes page for today's episode as well. You can find those at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. When it passes, I think is a matter of speculation. Uh, I'm still expecting it to pass. I've been on the record uh, since April telling people I think it's going to pass uh, before the end of this year, sometime in December after the election, but before uh, the end of the year, probably as part of a larger tax extenders bill. Um, there, there, there was uh, one panelist uh, who was a little bit more pessimistic about that view. And he thinks, you know, it, it likely might undergo some more changes and maybe it'll eventually get passed in 2023. Hopefully it passes one way or another sooner or later. Uh, Brett, I didn't want to belabor the, the talking points on the legislation too much longer. I wanted to talk about macroeconomic trends, but I don't know if you had any final words about the legislation before we move along. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, just to, to kind of uh, add to what you were saying, Jimmy, you know, I think Ideally, it would pass at the end of the year. I, you know, I think we've seen a lot of you know fourth quarter activity the last three years. I think it would really help to booster activity at the end of 2022, especially if there is that you know 15% step up available for investors this year. That that was a huge uh, windfall for folks the last few years. And then you know, I, I guess the um, you know the fund to funds concept is another one that I think would really help the industry. It, you know, I know there's a lot of 
opportunity funds out there that um, would, would love to, you know, invest in smaller funds. And, and there's also, you know, smaller funds out there that, you know, may struggle to find deals. They've set, set things up, but, you know, if they could, you know, be involved in a, in a larger fund, you know, that I think that'll help only uh, increase activity. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I, I can appreciate if, if you are a smaller fund, maybe you've got a million dollars or or less than that even in gain that you rolled over into your own qualified opportunity fund and now you're kind of running up against your deadlines for finding projects to invest in might be easier if you could just simply stroke a check to a, a different f- fund and uh, have your QOF invest directly in another QOF that that would certainly simplify that for for those types of individuals and and would would help uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, drive more capital investment into these opportunity zones. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it, it's it's a rather artificial impediment uh, that was instituted at the outset. And, you know, I, I think the good news about this too, Jimmy, is that this is a uh, bipartisan, bicameral. You know, I, I, I venture to say that this this incentive has been from the outset. So I think it's one more reason why, you know, both sides are working together to try to make this work. And I think going into a recession, that's going to be even more important that we want to continue to uh, encourage uh, folks to go out there and, and do deals. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, that recession. When you and I were speaking at the OZ Expo a few weeks back, we were talking about a future podcast episode we could do, which we're recording today now, finally, Brett. And, and one of the yeah. topics that you wanted to touch on was uh, the recession's impact on opportunity zones, it looked like we were in a recession. It kind of would depend on who you ask. I don't think the NEBR officially ever stated that we were in a recession for um, for the second half of this year, even though we did experience GDP declines in both Q1 and Q2. Uh, very coincidentally, though, um, just this morning, the Commerce Department came out with their most recent GDP figures. And it actually surprised me how good they were. They showed a 2.6% annual growth rate in the third quarter, which reversed those declines in Q1 and Q2. So we did experience two consecutive quarters of GDP decline, which is the technical definition of a recession. Um, depending on who you ask, we I think we were in a recession, it looked like, although sure. there were some conflicting economic data like strong job market and and um that that could run counter to that but in any case if we experience gdp growth in q3 technically we're out of a recession as of today i believe um but that said i think maybe a recession is on the horizon consumer sentiment is still very low um inflation is running very high and despite a strong job market though that said, if we are in a recession or headed toward a recession, what would a recession's impact be on the opportunities on marketplace in your mind? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a fascinating topic, whether or not we're in a recession, whether we've been in a recession, whether we'll be in a recession. But I think what's clear is there are recessionary trends happening and they're already affecting uh, fund sponsors, fund investors, developers, and pretty much everyone in the industry. You know, I think um, I think it's safe to say that, you know, over the last three or four years, the vast majority of of, of the projects that are, are, are getting done are, are real estate projects, you know, if, for better or for worse. Um, and um, and there's been, you know, quite a lot of activity 
course, in the multifamily and industrial sectors. And, um, you know, I think even before we were in a recession, the, uh, you know, the, the inflationary trends were, were, were happening uh, with, with, the, with the supply chain shortages, you know, coming out of COVID, you know, with the, with the long delays of, of, of materials sitting, sitting uh, you know, dockside on the West Coast last year. You know, we've been seeing the effects of that over the last year on a lot of deals. You know, the, the cost of lumber more than quadrupled at one point. You know, we're seeing the cost of other uh, materials, uh, you know, uh, concrete, uh, windows, appliances, just about everything steel has been affected by that over the last year. And that's, you know, that's costing um, sponsors and developers and, and their underlying investors. You know. and, and not just not just materials costs, but labor costs have gone oh, yeah. up too, right? No, no doubt about that. Yeah. yeah. And there's been a labor shortage. So it really has less to do with the recession than it does with just sort of larger trends that are outside of our control and how that's impacting deals. And, um, you know, I think there's no doubt, you know, inflation has, has, has become a major issue for the first time, maybe in, you know, our adult lives, Jimmy. I mean, I, I, I haven't thought about inflation since I was in grade school. Uh, in the 80s. And uh, yeah, I think we're seeing it for the first time, what, what life might look like when interest rates uh, creep up. I mean, we've been living in this, this world, maybe artificially for 10 plus years with, with these, these really low advantageous interest rates. And it's created this entire economy, if you will. Um, so what, what I'm seeing, you know, working with clients, talking with people is that they've got to get a lot more creative than they did even just a few months ago. Uh, finding uh, construction debt is, is becoming increasingly difficult. Uh, the amount of leverage that uh, can be brought into a deal is, is significantly less than it was a year ago. I mean, we were seeing deals 70, 75% leveraged, and now I'm hearing you know, 50 to 55 might be you know, more, more realistic, at least during the construction term. And um, of course, um, you're probably more familiar with, you know, where rates are and where rates are going. But, uh, you know, my concern too is that, you know, I think it's a pretty, pretty much a foregone conclusion that, you know, the Fed is going to continue to increase rates at least one or two more times. Yeah, yeah. They've uh, already raised rates uh, quite a bit. I think it's been three consecutive meetings that they've raised rates by 75 basis points. They have another meeting coming up soon. And that may lead to another 75 basis point increase. This episode will probably air after that meeting, actually, I'm realizing now. But uh, mm -hmm. they have really put a lot of upward pressure on rates by, by raising the federal rate um, quite dramatically in, in a very short period of time. Uh, so we've, we've now got, if, if, you, if you put a pro forma together for an Opportunity Zone deal in 2020 or 2021, Maybe you were expecting uh, to get a construction loan at you know a, a, a low rate, and now suddenly it's much higher. Maybe it's maybe it's creeping up to six percent or more. And if you were planning on doing a permanent debt refinancing after the asset is stabilized, and you were expecting a three or four percent rate, that's suddenly no longer the case. What what impact does that have on deals, or what has what impact has that already had on deals, these rate increases? And also, Brett, what will further increases do 
to 2023 new construction deals in your view? Yeah, I guess, you know, in, in my experience and my exposure to that is that it's, it's making it a lot harder to get deals done already. And, and you're right. A, a year ago, you could probably get a construction loan at three or three and a half percent. And now you're looking at six or more. Um, you know, what happens when the Fed raised the rates two more times? You know, we're looking at potentially 8% rates in 2023. And I, you know, my, my fear is that deals just won't get done. There's just, it's almost impossible to pencil a deal, uh, you know, in this current program, you know, with the way uh, deals are modeled. Um, I think what it does is it, is it puts a lot of pressure on sponsors to go out and, and raise money. Uh, you, you just gotta you gotta be under less leveraged, and and then you're gonna have to uh, bring in more more investors or, or bring in bigger investors. But that's gonna cost you too. Um, and I and I think yeah. Uh, you know, so so you sort of have to struggle with well, what happens to yields, and and how do you attract investors when you're under leverage, so to speak. I think that's going to be, you know, the challenge going into uh, 2023. Um, I, I don't know how it affects institutional money. Um, I guess I'm hopeful that uh, we'll continue to see more and more high net worth individuals, you know, come into this place, this space and, and play. Uh, you know, ideally, um, you know, there's, there's still going to be a, a wave of investors here, you know, at the end of, the, of this quarter. Uh as there has been for the last several years, you know, we always see an uptick in fourth quarter activity. You know, uh, I, I get the sense that there's been some somewhat of a stock sale off over the summer. So you've got 180 days from, from the time that, you know, those people were, were selling assets to potentially uh, invest in new, in, in, in a, in a new QOF. And then, you know, maybe, maybe there's more people out there that uh, sold real estate or businesses you know, maybe people in the 1031 space that just are having a hard time finding replacement properties. Maybe, maybe we see more of them too coming to play in this space. You know, so I guess you know the the bright side is that you know, this incentive has continued to attract more and more equity. I think you know you're you're well aware of the the numbers that Novograda keeps, and you know you know that the trends have, have continued to to improve each each quarter. Uh, the number of dollars invested in these funds. And, um, you know, I'm hopeful with maybe, you know, the, the proposed legislation passing and, you know, other incentives, especially that 15% step up, you know, that might attract more and more people into this space that, you know, maybe helps us carry through this six to 12 month dip, whatever you want to call it, if it's a recession or just reaction to inflation. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the, the, the marketplace uh, had some, I, and I guess actually just, just in general, the real estate market equities markets had tailwinds at their backs for the last decade or more, really. And now we're experiencing some headwinds here. Opportunity zones are becoming, I guess, more and more prevalent in the minds of investors. Every day that goes by, more and more investors and advisors become more familiar and aware of the program. But there are some headwinds that we're facing now with these macroeconomic conditions and the stock market drawdown, as you mentioned just to uh, put a little bow on on this and talk about Novogratz numbers for a moment, uh, they came out with their Q3 numbers uh, just about a week or so ago from when we're recording this this episode. Uh, their Q2 to Q3 actually was was roughly flat, I guess, mm-hmm. maybe slightly up, maybe slightly down, depending on 
if you're calculating on aggregate or on a per fund basis. Um, but Q3 year over year from the, the same period in the previous year was actually down slightly. I don't know if that's too alarming. Um, on, on the one hand, you know, the there is a lot more uncertainty in the market than there was a year ago. And I do think you're absolutely correct. Q4 is always the strongest quarter for opportunities on investment. It has been since um, since the first numbers started coming in in 2019. Mm-hmm. I'm expecting that we'll have a strong Q4, particularly if uh, I think you're right about uh, Section 1031 exchanges. There are just fewer transactions happening. Transaction volume for real estate has declined quite a bit this year with interest rates rising and and it just being harder to to get a deal done. Um, so yeah. I, I I hope I'll, I hope a lot of that money finds new home in opportunity zones and. I don't know if, we, if we're going to see equities investors, stock market investors um, come in more or or not. I guess I guess we'll we'll find out over the next several weeks and and months here. But I I can kind of buy into that that idea that maybe there was a big sell off in the summer, and I guess 180 days is coming up pretty quick for some of those investors. So I yeah, it's a bit speculative. There. But um, you know, I guess the other thing that you know maybe is encouraging is I think there's more and more people out there. That are, are are tired of the 60-40 balance stocks to bonds. And you know, it's it's been historically difficult, you know, even for high net worth people, maybe to find a real estate fund that they can invest in and trust and and really understand, you know, it's it's a different, it's a different model. But um, I'm hearing more and more that, you know, maybe that that 60-40 approach is <clears throat> is sort of going by the wayside and that you know, there might be some more room for the everyday, you know, high net worth uh, folks to say, look, maybe we should park 10 to 20% of our investments into a, a real estate fund or a qualified opportunity fund. Yeah. So now you're speaking my language and, and we talk about this concept a lot on my other podcast, the alternative investment podcast at our sister site, altsdb.com, which covers the alternative asset classes uh, more broadly than just OZs and you know the one of the stories we've been hearing this year and and retelling this year has been that shift from 60-40 to more of a 50-30-20 model, 50 stocks, 30 bonds, and then 20 in um in alternative assets like non-liquid real estate, like non-liquid opportunity zone funds. And by the way, I say the 50-30-20 with a bit of a grain of salt, that those numbers are meant more conceptually than as precise asset allocations. You need to talk with your own financial advisor to determine what the best asset allocation is for you. But conceptually, I, I think uh, that there's a trend there where a lot more investors and advisors in the retail non-institutional sector are, are considering alternative asset plays a lot more. And I think Opportunity Zone helps incentivize that trend and accelerates that trend quite a bit. And I'll actually just speak personally as a as an LP myself. I've I've done just that. I have shifted out of a 60-40 style portfolio and have invested into some opportunity zone funds and some other illiquid alternative assets myself over the past uh, 18 to 24 months as I saw the stock market hitting new highs and thought I was a little bit over exposed to stocks. I I took some off took some chips off the table and and uh and rebalanced my asset allocation a little bit there. So um Brett I did want to move on and 
shift gears a little bit and i know hey, you before want... you do jimmy i just yeah, go I, ahead I, brett some I, final I wouldn't thoughts mind here. Just, sure. you're just throwing a, a bone to you and your team too because i think opportunity db and osworks group has really done a great job of getting this message out to you know folks that might otherwise be in the sidelines that wouldn't otherwise be inclined to invest in a real estate fund and certainly not a qualified opportunity fund i mean it's it's sort of a you know it, an old boys network still out there, but I, I think you, you and your folks have done a great job of <clears throat> getting the message out to more of the masses. And um, I hope that helps to continue to attract more, more and more investors to this, to this space. Well, sure. Yeah. One of, one of our missions is to help democratize access to these types of assets, asset classes or, or investment instruments, what have you that typically have been um, only institutional. I think, I think more and more uh, access to these types of investments, real estate funds, or other types of alternative asset classes are becoming uh, more for the mass affluent or for high net worth accredited investors, more the retail segment of the investor world for sure. And I, you know, we're happy to to be doing what we're doing to try to get that message out and try to further democratize access to these types of investment products and and and. You know, a lot of kudos goes to the fund sponsors out there as well for setting up these deals such that they are accessible by that type of investor. So let's let's move along now to uh, talk about, you wanted to talk about, Brett, specific examples of good Opportunity Zone deals and bad Opportunity Zone deals. I don't know if I've heard, uh, we didn't prep for this too much. I didn't, I didn't hear any of the good or the bad. So Maybe sure. it's the good and the bad and the ugly. I'm not sure what you're going to give us here, but but walk <laughs> us through in in this next segment here what you consider to be characteristic of a good deal or a bad deal. Yeah, I would say you know, and and again, I've I've played mostly in you know the real estate sector over the last three or four years uh, since the incentive was was uh, instituted, and I I would say that um, the best deals, the best clients that I work for, are the ones that have a project in mind or have a, a group of projects in mind. They've, they've got a, a plan. They, they know exactly where they're going with, with, with the money. They, they, they have, they've studied the market um, and, and, and they, have, they have a product or an asset class that's really going to take off. They've done market studies and, um, and, and, and they time it well. So you know, there's, there's certainly luck and timing, but there's also you know, just finding a really good site is a huge part of this. And one of the challenges I think really from the outset <clears throat> has been, even though there's 8,700 plus opportunity zones out there, very few of them have actually seen investment. And it, it, it's it's unfortunate really, because of course the, the, the whole idea of the incentive is to encourage uh, investment and development and, and expansion of low-income communities. But the fact is that, that money chases the best deals and the best sites. And so it's it's been extremely competitive to find good opportunities on sites. And I think it gets harder and harder each year. And so, um, you know, the, the, the good ones were the ones that, that, that really did the research or maybe got lucky early on. Maybe they even had a site that was already in a zone that was in their pipeline. And it just sort of, they just got lucky. It was icing on the cake for what was already going to pencil out as a good and underwritten deal. Um, and on the flip side, you know, I think 
the bad deals are the ones, you know, there's sponsors. I've seen a lot of groups that just sort of come together. Maybe they haven't, you know, they, they've all done great things, you know, throughout their careers, but they haven't necessarily been on a team together. They come together, they've got all these great ideas, pie in the sky kind of approach, but they don't really know what they're doing. And, and I've seen, you know, a handful of those where they, they have, they have great intentions. They, they know what they want to do, but they haven't really pinned down a site and, and they sort of take that for granted that there's going to be a good site and that their model is going to work. But um, the blind pool approach doesn't seem to be terribly effective, frankly. Um, you know, most of the, most of the successful clients that I've worked with have either done single asset funds or they've had, you know, a fund with two or three or no more than four you know, deals in the pipeline. But they, they have a really good idea of exactly what they're going to do. Um, I, can, I can say one class that's really knock it out of the park has been, you know, student housing, you know, especially student housing on a campus that's in an opportunity zone. Um, and if you've got an experienced developer uh, that, that's sort of been in that class and, and understands that market and, uh, you know, has the relationships on the ground, you know, which contractors to work with, which subs to work with, you know, how to get things done at the city or county level, and then um, execute and build, you know, a project in, you know, under 16 to 18 months, and then be ready to launch when the new class comes in, in the fall. And what, what a great way to, to stabilize in, in less than two months. You know, I built this project, it's brand new, you know, all the rich kids on campus want to live there. Um, it may not be exactly what the framers had in mind, but it's been a phenomenal model uh, for, for investors and sponsors out there. Um, and I think in general, you know, good multifamily deals have just, have just killed it. And, um, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of really good multifamily developers out there that, that understand where they need to be. Um, you know, we, we hear about the smile, of the United States, you know, starting from the Carolinas down through Georgia, Florida, you know, up through Texas and then into the Southwest and then up the coast. And, um, you know, that's where we're seeing the most successful deals. I think everybody's chasing a lot of the same sites in that region. Um, and uh, unfortunately, you know, I think that the other area that I've seen this project struggle has been, it's just been in rural areas. Um, it's, it's been harder uh, for sponsors in, in the, in, in outside of the major metros to attract capital. I think that's always been the case, but um yeah, I've, I've noticed that uh, the groups that have a local network of, of people that sort of buy into their product or buy into their business model, they're going to they're going to succeed. You know, it's going to be a smaller knit group. But if I'm out, you know, um, on the res, so to speak, you know, sort of far from a metro and I don't have a good network of potential, you know, uh, investors to tap into, it, it's going to be really difficult to, to not only raise money, but to get good leverage. Sure. I, and that makes sense. I mean, those are just kind of larger problems that, that the opportunity zone policy incentive uh, can't fix all by itself. No. Right. Um, no. I want to kind of hone in on one thing you said about uh, opportunity zone funding, going to housing for rich college kids. I, I, I wanted to just kind of <laughs> point out one fact about the OZ reform legislation. So a lot of opportunity zones got placed in or adjacent to college campuses where most of the residents are students and 
students are typically are, are, are technically low income, even if they do come from wealthy families and, and have access to plenty of money. So I think that was that may have been an oversight initially by by the legislation and and the people who slated the opportunity zones across the country. Uh, but the OZ reform legislation, if I understand it correctly, would disqualify a lot of those types of zones and instead use a different metric to get at whether or not the census tracts are low income. Uh, now, so I would say if you are interested in doing student housing in some of these technically low income, but but typically higher, wealthier um, students uh, now might be your last chance because the, the funds that do make the investments prior to the legislation getting passed will get grandfathered in. But I don't know if that's a, a good long-term trend to hold on to if the reform legislation passes. Do I have that right, Brett? Have you, have you heard anything like that or anything different? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's that, that's that's sort of the the third rail of that legislation, you know, that we didn't we haven't really talked about yet here today, but we did talk about on the panel at the expo. And yeah, I think that's gonna be really controversial, Jimmy. Um that process for decertifying mm -hmm. opportunity zones. Uh and of course, you know. One of the one of the you know concerns I think out there is that the you know the original zones were designated based on 2010 census tract data. Of course, you know a lot can change in 10, 12 years. So I think you know going forward, you know the 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 new certified or decertified zones would would certainly be based on 2020 census data. But it, we're always going to have this problem. I mean, the census data is 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 stale as soon as it's collected. And with each passing year, you know, there's there's demographic changes, there's population shifts, and so um, yeah, I think um, you know the, that's going to be a very political and, and challenging process. It, there's certainly you know tracks in, in certain states that were maybe handpicked or designated by 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 the governors and and their and their staff that they really wanted to incubate more development in certain areas, and sure. Uh, I guess the problem now is, well, what if, what if the, uh, you know, the poverty rate is, is, uh, or the income is 130% greater than, than the, the, the regular area median income, um, they're, they're going to be on the chopping block. I, I can't, I have not heard anything that, you know, campuses are being targeted in particular. Well, well the, the, the one thing is, and this is, I didn't want to get too technical, but I yeah. guess I will for a minute here. Sure. They're, they're redefining the metric that they're using. So the previously they were using median household income to right. get at whether or not a census tract qualified as low income. And now they're going to use a, a metric called family household income. I think it is. Mm -hmm. um, I'll clarify this in the show notes and I'll, I'll, I'll have links to this, but family household income is going to uh, somehow get around the student population. And, and so this if you've got a large pocket of students in a particular census tract, they will no longer count as low income going forward. That's my understanding, at least. Yeah, no, I mean, um, that's that's a good point, Jimmy. Um, I'm looking at it now and you're right. It's it's It would disqualify OZs if the median family income exceeds 130% of national median family income. So, right, so previously really, they were really, using median household income. Yeah, that word changes a lot. It does um, change a lot, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also a concern for, you know, maybe areas that are gentrifying and certain, you know, metros that have oh, seen yeah, a lot. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Not not yeah. only that, but the, the data is getting updated. It's much fresher than it was when the yeah. OZs got slated originally, for sure. 
Yeah, I guess, I mean, the good news is if, um, if I've already, you know, handpicked a site and I, I got lucky enough to be in one of those zones and I've, you know, done my offering, you know, I've, maybe I've even taken down the land or, you know, I've at least spent $250,000, then I'm, I'm pretty well grandfathered in, I think under the current proposed legislation. So, yes. you know, maybe, maybe I can say, you know, I'm, I'm, I got onto the block and no one else will. So maybe that's an even bigger advantage. Um, yeah, maybe it may be. Um, and, and again, if you are going to get into one of these zones that might be on the chopping block, mm -hmm. uh, the time is now or never potentially, because if this legislation gets passed in the next few weeks or, or mm -hmm. months, um, you'll be grandfathered in if you got in in time, but otherwise it won't be available going forward. And then one other issue with the, the decertifying mm. is, and this is a little bit technical as well, but I think our, our viewers and our listeners should know is that we are using the 2010 geographic, physical geographic boundaries of these census tracts as opportunity zones, but the new data doesn't use those same physical boundaries. It uses the new 2020 map. And right. oftentimes the physical shape of the opportunity zones in 2010 is no longer the shape in 2020. So the 2020 data for any one particular zone may not really map into that zone one-to-one, -one, if that makes sense. So it's going to be very difficult to actually crunch the numbers on which of these tracts, in fact, is no longer eligible. Yeah, and again, I my concern there too is, I, I think you're gonna see a lot of lobbying. You know, if this legislation passes, the with, with this provision in it um, at the state level and at the local level and, and even at the national level, uh, you know, there's gonna, there's, there's gonna be pushback when, when certain tracks are, are decertified. And um, it's unfortunate. I, I mean, there's no easy way to do this. Um, you know, I think, you know, four or five years ago when, when the original census tracks were designated, people really weren't paying that much attention. So mm -hmm. it gave, governors and their staff, a, a ton of discretion and anyone at the local level that was lobbying then probably, you know, got their way, so to speak. Mm -hmm. you know, I've seen yeah, quite possibly, where, uh, depending on which state you're in, for sure. But now yeah. the governors will have a chance to replace any early disqualified census tracts. Uh, so that that'll at least be a, uh, another bite at the apple. So yeah, but also an inherently political process. And of course, it will be an inherently political <laughs> process as well, because they will have, um, you know, several dozens, if not hundreds of zones to choose from, depending on which state they're in. Yeah, and for sure. They get to and select think... a, a handful that get to be newly designated as opportunity zones. It will be an interesting process to, to watch unfold for it, sure. I agree. Yeah. So, well, Brett, I think we're kind of running out of time here, unfortunately. We spent a lot of time talking about macroeconomic conditions and and the legislation. Um, just to kind of wrap up our conversation now, any, any high-level thoughts from you on how we can get more investors into Opportunity Zones later this year and heading into 2023? How, 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 do, we, how do we turn the, the, the tide a little bit and get more investors into OZs? Yeah, that's that's the the ten million dollar question, I guess. Um, I think just continue to do what we're doing, Jimmy. Um, I, you know, I think uh, I think getting the message out, uh, going on the road, talking to folks, you know, sort of sort of 
breaking the mold, if you will. You know, I, I, I still think there's, there's quite a few folks out there that are, that are uh, ambivalent or, or, or just a little gun shy about investing in a real estate fund. They may not understand it. They, you know, it, it takes a lot of trust in the sponsor. And, you know, to, so I, I think the big, one of the biggest challenges of this program too, is that, you know, I've got to park my money for 10 years. And, you know, if I, if I go to any other real estate fund out there, you know, I'm, I'm only likely to do so for three to five or seven. So I think, you know, getting, tapping into those, those investors out there that maybe are looking to be a little more patient, maybe, maybe going into this, you know, downward spiraling economy recession, whatever you want to call it. uh, Maybe maybe there's going to be more opportunities to find those people that just, they don't know what to do uh, because, you know, the stock market is, is not a, a great market to invest in as much nowadays. Yeah, certainly is. It certainly <laughs> hasn't been this year. It's down, I think, about uh, 25% through Q3. And it's been been very volatile here in Q4 so far as well. So it has been has been tough for, for stock market investors, that's for sure. Well, hey, Brett, I wanted to thank you again for coming on the show today. It's been great to get your insights. If we have any listeners or viewers out there today who are interested in learning more about you, and the good work that uh, your law firm Jennings Strauss provides. Where can they go to learn more and to get in touch? Sure, uh, they can reach me at uh, you know bsiglin at jsslaw.com. Check out our website and um, feel free to to reach out. Uh, I'll just give my phone number six zero two two six two five eight four two. And uh, really appreciate this opportunity again to be on your show, Jimmy. I love what you're doing, and uh, let's keep it going. Absolutely, Brett. And uh, again, for our listeners and viewers out there today, I will, of course, have show notes available for today's episode at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there I will have links to all of the resources and the contact information uh, for Brett Siglin. Be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes from the Opportunity Zones podcast. Brett, again, been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 